This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. Here's why you should watch today's Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. A changing of the guard at some of the highest profile crypto firms will analyze the big news at Celsius, FTX, US, and others, and what may be some key regulatory signals to the crypto space, plus a deep dive into cross-chain interoperability with Sergey Gorbanov from Axelar, who explains why this crucial aspect of DeFi is coming now. As always, we'll break the conversation down into key takeaways at the end. Stay tuned for that. I'm Ash Bennington, joined today by Santiago Velez. How are you doing, Santiago? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back, Ash. Oh, it's always great to have you with us, man. Uh, I should say, don't forget to subscribe to Real Vision Crypto. It's free. If you're watching this on YouTube, smash the like button for the algorithm, subscribe and hit the bell for notifications. Now, let's jump right into today's price action. The surge in crypto's prices we saw Tuesday has evaporated. Bitcoin is down on a 24-hour basis, hitting lows below 19,000. It's above that threshold right now. We can see that infamous Bart Simpson pattern on the chart when you look there. It uh, kind of looks a little bit like his hair. Uh, it remains a brutal macro environment for risk assets, we should say more broadly outside of the crypto space, meaning in uh, traditional capital markets. In the UK, there could be an emergency rate hike. Meanwhile, Ethereum is trading in a very similar pattern to Bitcoin today. It fell below 1300 before recovering slightly. Santiago, what are you looking at in terms of price action? Well, you know, honestly, I'm uh, I'm actually surprised that the resiliency of the crypto markets uh, as compared to other you know equities, for example, or even the bond market. Uh, so, you know, surprisingly, they're behaving just like one would expect in a, in a normal bear market. Um, I, I'm I'm actually anticipating another kind of big leg down, but not quite yet. Some assets are kind of breaking out. Uh, we saw Uniswap, Link, uh, XRP, and and Quant is on a tear for the seven days. So. There's still a lot of projects out there, uh, you know, kind of moving on their own. Uh, but overall, the market, you know, continues to trade sideways and still kind of the, at the at the back of the uh, macro. Yeah. Another crypto we should say we're looking at right now is CEL, C-E-L. That's the native token of the Celsius block, uh, the Celsius network. The token experienced some wild swings in the past 24 hours as there was double news regarding the company, which brings us to our top story. We saw two big names in the crypto space depart their roles on Tuesday, albeit under somewhat different circumstances. First, Alex Mashinsky, the CEO of bankrupt crypto lender Celsius Network, has stepped down with immediate effect. In his resignation letter, Mashinsky wrote, quote, I regret that my continued role as CEO has become an increasing distraction. Celsius prevented customers, of course, from withdrawing money in June in what was a major sign of significant distress in the crypto industry. Shortly after the company filed for bankruptcy, that process is currently ongoing. Uh, and Mashinsky says he wants to continue to help with it. In the interest of full transparency, Celsius was an advertising partner of Real Vision, important for us to say. Santiago Mashinsky uh, has become a polarizing figure. What are your thoughts here? 
Well, you know, I think back to the interview that you and I did with with Alex, uh, and I've met Alex personally. Uh, I think it's a difficult time, um, not just for him, but for the overall Celsius community. Anybody that had assets invested and, and is now waiting to go through that process in bankruptcy court, uh, that's a difficult time. And I think uh, the rest of the digital asset space should be sympathetic to kind of what they're going through. Uh, and, and as always, it's a good sign when you have a change in leadership at a critical moment. There, there's still an incredible amount of assets under management by Celsius, including uh, you know Bitcoin, ASICs, uh, and of course, all the other digital assets that were seized. Uh, so it's a good sign. I think it's, it's part of the process and, and we have to be patient to see kind of how it plays out. Yeah, as we have said, there was another major departure yesterday. FTX U.S. President Brett Harrison is also stepping down. He will shift to an advisory role instead. He had been with FTX U.S. since May of 2021. It follows another high-profile crypto resignation just last week when Kraken co-founder and CEO Jesse Powell announced his departure. Santiago, this one has been perhaps a little bit more surprising, Brett Harrison, I mean, especially given how well FTX has been doing lately. What do you make of this? Well, you know, FTX is in a position of strength, um, and what the bear markets tend to reveal is is essentially who is who is weak and who's strong. And I think that uh, the repositioning represents uh, potentially some political maneuvering uh, and maybe some future partnerships. And uh, you know, the day to day operations can be very time consuming, and I think this frees up a key leader uh, to do some more interesting things. So I I'm curious to see how it plays out, uh, but I think uh, FTX is going to do really well in this bear market. Yeah, we, you know, we can speculate a little bit, and it would be just speculation about the role of a now-deleted tweet from Harrison. I think it was back in July. Harrison stated that stocks are, quote, held in FDI-insured, close quote, accounts. FD, FDIC, of course, doesn't insure brokerage accounts. That's something called SIPIC, as anyone who's worked at a broker-dealer can tell you. This is the Securities Investor Protection Corporation uh, that protects against the cases of insolvency uh, for broker-dealers or securities firms. You know, Reuters linked back to this story about the tweet uh, in August when reporting his departure yesterday. Uh, you know, whatever the case here is, whether that was or was not a factor, I think it's probably worth noting some sort of the differences between the crypto and TradFi space. You know, the CEOs of major banks don't generally uh, tweet about their regulators. They don't generally tweet about regulation in general. When that comes out, it's a very carefully orchestrated uh, type of communication that goes through their comms department, their legal department, their compliance department. It's just a really different ethos in the space uh, here in crypto, which is, you know, very much kind of uh, run and gun shoot from the hip. There's one more story that connects Celsius and FTX. According to Bloomberg sources, Sam Bankman-Fried, of course, the CEO of FTX, is considering bidding for the assets of Celsius. Uh, this comes a day after FTX was announced as the winner of the auction, of course, for Voyager digital assets. Uh, the same Bloomberg source that FTX says that FTX is in the process of raising $1 billion. Santiago, we may be in a crypto winter, but clearly the shopping spree at FTX continues. Strength, strength, strength. You know, they, uh, they're in a good position to take the cash heavy uh, balance sheet that they have and, and go discount shopping. And I think uh, this means further consolidation, uh, not just for them, but for others who are also in a similar position of strength, they're gonna take and bargain shop. Uh, so what we could see coming out of the bear market is a much more concentrated space. Um, obviously regulators like that because it just makes it their job easier to work with a fewer number of, of counterparties. Uh, so it's kind of the natural trend that we see in bear markets, and and it it could end up being a a good thing from a regulatory standpoint, uh, but we'll have to see. It does mean more uh, centralization there. 
Yeah, so well said, Santiago. Sort of on both sides of the continuum, you have a simplicity of regulation uh, from the perspective of regulators when you have things that are essentially concentrated in a few large firms. But as you point out, the downside of that is decentralization, of which we will be speaking more uh, later in the show. The next story, uh, talking of which, actually, this is related to the same point. This next story concerns the biggest criticism some people have had about Ethereum in the post-merge world. Does proof of stake make it more centralized, meaning with the new consensus mechanism proof of stake concentrate power in the hands of just a few big companies kind of the same story uh, the IMF seems to think so in a new research note reported by decrypt the IMF warns that excessive concentration via proof of stake could quote uh, increase market integrity risk close quote Santiago we've heard similar concerns since the idea of transitioning from proof of work to proof of stake first floated what do you think well, you know, the the, the market uh, speaks for itself. And what we've seen is a few large validators uh, like Lido, Coinbase, et cetera, have uh, a majority of the uh, validation ETH stake. Um, whether or not that becomes problematic, we'll have to see. And I think it will express itself if and when the regulator decides that they want to see if they can regulate down to the block level and starts to put pressure on some of those uh, large validators, especially if there's only a handful uh, so, you know, I think um, the, the the jury's still out and we'll see how the networks respond to that kind of uh, attack surface. Um, you know, the the merge was definitely a, a buy the rumor, sell the news event. And, and the price action, as we were discussing earlier, you know, that, that continues to reflect the macro. Um, but the, the 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 validation naturally over time means further concentration in the largest ETH holders just because of the mechanism in which. Validators are rewarded for for validating blocks and, and and processing transactions. So, for the long term, it remains to be seen whether or not it, it is gonna it's gonna remain decentralized. Uh, so that's what I'm most curious about, and I think that's what a lot of people in the proof of work uh, uh, camp uh, is is that one of their main criticisms. Yeah, you know, I also like to talk about the story just a little bit more broadly here. You know, the name of the paper from the IMF is Regulating the Crypto Ecosystem. They're telling you right on the uh, tin what the end goal here is. You know, I've said before we may be in this process of coming to a head in what could be, could be uh, a coming civil war in the crypto space between pro-regulatory forces on the one hand and folks who believe in the more decentralized libertarian ideals of cryptocurrency on the other. Uh, and this may very well be precipitated by the Ethereum transition from proof of work to proof of stake, which seems to just naturally, uh, for a series of reasons related to the technology, surface some of these issues. Santiago, any thoughts about that? Well, you know, honestly, I think it could come through the venue of stablecoins uh, as we see, you know, money market funds and, and yields rise on savings and deposits. Naturally, that's going to strengthen the the, the yields on, on uh, stablecoins themselves, which are an integral part of the DeFi space. Uh, so then what will, will likely happen is those those uh, stable coins that have a, a centralized counterparty may be put under pressure to implement, you know, sanctions or 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 censor transactions, et cetera, whitelists, blacklists. Uh, and, and so eventually the pressure will mount to down to the block level and, and to the validators. And right. I think the regulators will test that space until they see how far they can go. Uh, and, and how how practical it is to to uh, implement uh, um, that, you know that that enforcement, and we could see a bifurcation of the space. You know, we could see a, yes. a, a splitting of a very compliant sector, and then a, 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 on the other side, a very kind of deregulated, uh, anonymized sector. 
Yeah, I think that's extremely well said, and I think it's spot on. Uh, look, the reality is that this is already coming in the stablecoin space. It's already here. We saw this with Tornado Cash. We saw this uh, with Circle censoring uh, some of the transactions from blacklisted addresses. But really, the key point about what's coming next uh, is this question of does it happen at the validator level? Do stake pools uh, wind up getting regulated as well? You know, the argument in the space is that at the protocol level, uh, these transactions should remain uh, censorship resistant, whether or not regulators are going to feel the same way. I think that's very much an open question. And as you point out, the ultimate implication of that could be a bifurcation of the space where you see this splitting uh, into a regulated sector uh, and an anonymous sector. That could have really profound implications that I'm not sure a whole lot of people have thought through yet, Santiago. Yeah, hundred percent agree. I'm 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 waiting uh, patiently to see how it plays out and how the communities respond, uh, whether yeah. or not they come together and uh, uh, come up with a, a, a unique compromise or solution, or um, if if it's just essentially the large exchanges or large validators who who uh, drive most of the departure because they're not beholden to the community, they're beholden to the shareholders. So um, that that's where I think most of the pressure is going to be. Well, they're beholden to the shareholders, but in addition to the shareholders, they also have uh, regulatory uh, agencies that they have to report to. Look, many of these companies that are operating stake pools are are here in the U.S. They're publicly held corporations. Their directors and, and officers are, in fact, U.S. residents, U.S. persons who are within the reach of U.S. jurisdiction. So this is really a, a potentially thorny question, and I think we can sort of see it coming down uh, like the pike in the fog, and it's clear that this is an issue that's coming, but how it gets resolved, we're going to have to wait and see. And that's why we're having, uh, you know, these conversations live every day on this show, I believe, starting next week. So very exciting there. Um, we should also say another uh, story in this space right now that's relevant here. It has some implications that are quite similar. We've also heard some very interesting comments uh, from Fed Chair Jay Powell in a panel on Tuesday reported by Coindesk. Uh, he said, quote, the DeFi winter didn't have any significant effects on the banking system and broader financial stability due to a lack of links between them. Uh, so this is essentially saying that the uh, the unregulated DeFi space does not have spillovers. This is what we talked about uh, during the 2008 period where you saw spillover effects from the uh, mortgage market, specifically from some of the asset-backed securities in the mortgage market causing instability in the broader financial sector. Powell is saying that we don't see that. Uh, he said this gives lawmakers time to work on regulation, and he urged them to do it, quote, thoughtfully and carefully. So Powell essentially signaling that there's not really an incredible rush to get this regulation done right now because there isn't this pressure uh, on the system more broadly caused by spillover effects. But he also said something else that I think is very interesting. As he put it, and this to me was one of the key phrases that came out of it, quote, same risk, same regulation. Santiago, when it comes to the Fed, we parse through every word. What do you make of these comments from, from Chair Powell? I think it's a little myopic. I think for decentralized networks that operate globally, uh, the, the type of enforcement that is required is a globally coordinated enforcement. And so I think that any individual nation state regulator is going to have a difficult time. You know, it's kind of like squeezing a bar of soap. You know, the, the, the tighter you squeeze, the more it slips out of your hand. So right. uh, I, I think that uh, eventually what will happen is um, that it's the stablecoin issuers who will be pressed uh, to, you know, do whitelisting and blacklisting, et cetera. And there will be more, um, a more market demand for the decentralized versions of that, which right. obviously come with their own volatility risk. And, and so there'll be this trade-off between risk as an investor into these assets uh, versus the practicality of it and, and whether they're, you know, backed by treasuries, et cetera. So, right. you know, I, I do think that over the long term, uh, the regulator is going to try 
And as the financial systems start to intertwine, which they ine inevitably will, they could end up becoming a systemic risk and the need for uh, enforcement and oversight is going to grow. Uh, so they're paying attention. They know how fast the space is growing and they, they, they yeah. understand that they, they have to intervene. I guess the silver lining there is uh, those comments from Chair Powell suggest that there's not a rush to get this done quickly and maybe overly hastily. Uh, it seems as though he wants people to be deliberative uh, and take their time and think this through. I completely agree with you on stable coins. I'm not convinced that they're going to stop there. Uh, I often have these conversations uh, with folks in the crypto space. I like playing devil's advocate and making the point that this regulation is coming. And, and I always tell them, look, you've made an incredibly convincing argument to me. I, I agree with you. But the question is whether or not regulators are going to agree. And then the sort of second layer question that you alluded to there, I think, is spot on. Uh, if they don't agree, uh, will they, in fact, be successful? I think that is very much an open question. This metaphor of squeezing a bar of soap uh, is a good one. It's one I may steal from you, Santiago, because <laughs> I think that is, you know, potentially the challenge when you when you come and, and propound a regulation. If you can't enforce it uh, or there's no party to enforce it against, that can become tricky. In either case, obviously some really interesting stuff coming down the pike in this space. Uh, by the way, a little bit of a transition here. The IMF has also warned about vulnerabilities concerning cross-chain bridges, another concern, obviously, in addition to some of the regulatory headwinds that we see in the space. It's a critical aspect of DeFi which means making sure different blockchains can talk to one another. Uh, this is what bridges do in their purest sense. Uh, it's also been a significant vector of attacks uh, by DeFi hackers. Sergey Gorbanov is the CEO and co-founder of Axelar, which is a cross-chain transfer protocol. Santiago, before we get started here, why were you interested in Axelar? Well, you know, I think that the future is multi-chain, and, and I and I believe firmly that if we're going to have a, a the next great financial crisis, a global one, uh, we we need an alternative financial system, uh, something that is well knit together, is reliable, secure, uh, and allows for a value to transfer uh, in and out of value essentially. And I think that any any project that offers the ability to kind of stitch these different L ones together and share their properties, it makes that tapestry that topology. Uh, stronger um, and more useful, so that when when the time does come uh, to to use this financial system, we'll have it, it'll be ready. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best—it's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line—it's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI—it's possible because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Yeah. Talking, talking of which, let's jump into the first clip on how Sergey got into this cross-chain line of work in the first place. Um, started to play with the blockchain space a little bit more. So I worked on the project uh, that ended up being uh, kind of our grand blockchain and so helped to design and take that to the market with a, uh, with a team out of Boston. and. Uh, uh, afterwards, after launching Algorand, though, we saw kind of rising problem in the ecosystem that a lot of different chains were being built. Uh, all of them had very unique approaches to consensus, right? To fast, uh, you know, um, fast uh, speed, uh, but none of them could really talk to one another, right? And it was clear to us that for the ecosystem to continue growing, we are going to need to have all these different chains because they all had their own trade-offs, right? Um, but we have to function as a whole, as an ecosystem. And so connectivity across all these chains became a very important problem 
And, uh, you know, we didn't really see any solutions that were valuable to connect, uh, you know, our grant and many other chains. And so we started Axelar with my co-founder, Yorgos, to precisely focus on that problem, right? How do we allow everybody to continue innovating, build more chains, uh, scaling the ecosystem, but still be functioning as one by connecting everything together? And so that's what we're focusing on at Axelar. That's fantastic. You know, I think a lot of people take for granted uh, kind of the topology of the internet, which, you know, at, at the base layer, there's this TCP IP and every single computer can talk to every other computer and, and route information easily. Um, and it's one language. But when you get into blockchains exactly. and different consensus protocols, they may all speak a completely different language. Um, and so if you want to route information or value, you need a way to uh, essentially be the translator in the middle, right? Um, and so yep. as I understand it, XLR acts as that kind of universal translator and router. Uh, so can you explain a little bit about, um, you know, maybe, uh, how Axelar works, and, 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 and then we can break down uh, how on an individual chain uh, it may intervene um, or be that facilitator, and then how we achieve essentially cross-chain communication, and then we'll, we can get into security. So first of all, how, how does Axelar works? What is it, um, and, and how does this solve this problem? Yeah, I mean, on a very high level, it's easy to think of Axelar as almost like sort of Stripe for Web3, right? So. On top of the network and all the complicated infrastructure, there is a very simple API that developers can use to communicate cross-chain. Okay, so meaning like you can send a message, you can specify a destination where it needs to go, and it will go there, right? And it will execute that message. And your message can be anything from a token transfer to a cross-chain kind of smart contract call to NFT transfer, right? payment, anything, anything you can encode in that message, right? And so this is what the developers interact with, right? Um, at the bottom of this sits a decentralized and a permissionless network, which is a protocol that we have designed, which is the Axel network, that's responsible for kind of routing and moving of information, right, from one ecosystem to another. So as soon as a developer makes this request with an API, then the network will understand that request and think about where it needs to go, how it should be processed, how it should be executed, and then help you execute this request on the destination chain and return it back, you know, to your to your to your home base chain, right? And so you can think of um, then the the actual network as the infrastructure on the back end that does all the complicated kind of air traffic control. You can think of it that way, right? That, that kind of directs traffic from one network to another. But developers get exposed to a very simple API that they can just interact with um, to send messages. And at the end of the day, what this enables are experiences for the users that allow them to interact with you know, any asset, any application, any chain with one click. Okay, Santiago, first a couple of questions before we get into the technical details here. What makes Axelar different from some of the other chains that we've talked about here on this show? Uh, Cosmos and Polkadot come to mind as cross-train protocols. Well, I think the, the, the first step is to make an analogy to how the internet we're all familiar works. And, and that and that's this idea of kind of these hubs that route information. Uh, and and so a typical bridges are just really connecting two endpoints between two L1s. Uh, but what's unique here is this essentially this uh, content delivery network analogy, right? That you have a hub that overlays on top of a number of L1s. And so it's it's more sophisticated than just simply a a one-to-one -one bridge. Um, mm -hmm. and, 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 and therein is the key uh, kind of value proposition is this, is this overlay idea. So um, 
to me, it's it's how do you how do you do that in a, in a simple way so that a developer can come along and and have an abstracted form. So instead of worrying about how am I going to build on four, five, six, ten different L1s and and having to know all the little idiosyncrasies of each one, you can come to this uh, overlay network and do all your business logic there, and then that's all abstracted for you. And so that's a very um, a very simple way of essentially building on top of this internet of value and, and expanding it out to, you know, essentially like our internet is now. You know, it's interesting. Axelar was not a protocol that I was familiar with until a couple of weeks ago. And then suddenly it seems like it's everywhere all the time. Yeah, you know, it, it came out of the desire to uh, connect, uh, you know, uh, Alloran to Ethereum and to other large L1s. And the first problem that you, you you arrive at if you're connecting an EVM and a non-EVM L1 is they speak this is the, this totally is the different Ethereum languages. virtual machine for those who may not know. That's right. And you know, so if the programming language and and, and the machine the virtual machine is different, you now have a problem where you have to understand how both uh, arrive at consensus, how they do messaging, how they do transactions and know both systems intimately. And, and that's problematic because you would have to essentially be an expert on all of the systems. Uh, and, and so, you know, the, the desire came from this acknowledgement that different L1s arrive at consensus differently. Some use proof of work, some use proof of stake, some use the EVM and others don't. And so how do you stitch this all together so that you can get reliable, secure, cross-chain interoperability? Uh, yeah. And and that that's that's a that's a significant challenge. So it, it makes sense that the space is going in this direction. Yeah, and do it all in a decentralized way. By the way, uh, this is probably obvious to some, but probably worth repeating nonetheless. It's important to note that obviously this problem set that's been attempting to be solved right now by Axelar uh, has been this at the core of many of the cross-chain bridge hacks that we've seen. In other words, we've seen cross-chain bridges that are not secured by consensus try to perform precisely the function that you've just described, Santiago, uh, with some really significant security impacts in the way. Uh, so that's, uh, of course, worth bearing in mind when people are trying to get their heads around what uh, problem Axelar seeks to be a solution too. So let's jump in now and get more detail about how Axelar works. As I understand it, Axelar would sit on top and try to reconcile between two separate networks, all of those various differences, right? In other words, if you have an Ethereum on one side and an Avalanche or Algorand on another side, uh, and there is a kind of cross-chain either messaging, communication, or value transfer, tokenization, whatever, um, you have to take into account the individual idiosyncrasies of each network to kind of achieve final settlement, if you want to call it that. Is that is that a fair yeah. uh, summary? That, that's very fair, right? Like, so uh, I think the way we like to think about it is like Axelar is almost it's like an overlay network on top of these networks, right? And so kind of the, the concept of overlay network is actually pretty well known in distributed systems and like traditional intranet, right? It's a network that um, kind of sits between other networks that helps you do kind of routing, translation, right, and uh, security. So that's those are kind of the key properties. And then Axelar network uh, itself kind of plugs in to other chains, but without requiring any changes from those platforms, right? So there is like, um, what we deploy is what we call like a, a gateway to those chains. Gateway is almost like a router, right? And then once this router is sort of deployed to this chain, then anybody can send messages to this router. And then this Axelar overlay network will take those messages, know where they need to go to which other routers and kind of deliver them there and sort of execute, right? So it's a network that sits on top of it. 
And then it is intelligent in the sense that it knows how to do this routing. It knows finalization rules of different chains, right? So whether or not you're working with proof of stake or proof of work or, you know, uh, any other model, um, the network knows how to finalize messages uh, from those chains and then kind of process them from there. I see. So this uh, gateway approach and, and this API approach, you're essentially abstracting a lot of the kind of underlying complexities of the L1 so that the application developer can focus on kind of just getting down to business, right? Doing an a business logic. Um, and, and then, you know, with consideration for the differences in the network, um, then making choices. Uh, does it have a capability of kind of uh, multi-hopping or routing in a sense? Uh, if you If you have these... Uh, various, um, I mean, I assume you use smart contracts for these gateways on each of the L1s. Uh, can you route uh, to, uh, along various paths, similar to how the internet routes? Yeah, exactly. Um, so right now, kind of everything is connecting through sort of uh, one instance of the protocol, right? But um, kind of one of the next upcoming you know, upgrades would be actually to allow like multiple instances of this protocol that is still composable with one another, right? So, and the kind of precisely to your point, right? Like the, the world that we have to get to eventually is to allow, you know, multiple surf hubs of connectivity, right? With intelligent routing between them. So in the same way as you travel, you know, by air, right? Like take airplanes, you know, you always kind of find the most optimal route to go from a city A to a city B, right? And maybe you have like one hop in the middle or no hops in the middle and, you know, platforms like Expedia allow you to search that efficiently, right? In the same way in Web3 infrastructure, we are kind of building this sort of routing or transport layer that will allow you to have, the optimal number of hops, right, with the best security and like lowest transaction fees at the end of the day, if you have to take like multiple hops. So Santiago, you break down some of the details here. Sergey describes Axelar as an overlay network that handles routing, translation, and security. Can Axelar serve in the role of bridges, which obviously have been notorious uh, for their security concerns in the past? We've talked about this a little bit in the prior question, uh, but more broadly speaking here, talk a little bit about the mechanics of the overlay network. So essentially, think of it as a, uh, a set of chain links that connect to one another. And if you have two L1s, they have to be connected without creating a weakest link. Uh, and so that in, that overlay network in and of itself has to be as secure uh, as the L1s that it's trying to, to support. So what they've done is instead of just having a bridge that has a few multi-sigs uh, or, or some centralization component that, that makes it uh, susceptible to an attack, you have a completely independent network that has its own set of consensus uh, based on proof of stake, its own set of validators, um, and its own security. Uh, it can borrow some security from other networks and, and they can share in, in that. Uh, but essentially that that middle link, which connects the other two has to be as robust and it has to be able to secure the messaging and the value transfers. And, and what is, what's interesting is that it, it essentially it puts hooks in each of the L1. So it will write a smart contract on Ethereum or it will write a smart contract on some other smart contract capable network. And it's those hooks, those uh, little uh, smart contract processes that do the work that the overlay network tells it to, right? That 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 relays it. Uh, so it's, it's a very clever way of making sure that there's no opportunity for a an attacker, like we've seen uh, more recently in various uh, bridge collapses, to kind of attack it mid-transit, midway, uh, and so it's safe the entire the entire path. So I, I think it's brilliant. Yeah. In the next clip, Sergey talks about decentralization and the risk factors. Let's take a listen. 
I think a lot of kind of a first generation, even a lot of solutions that you use today, they're all centralized, right? So what that means is that the protocol that moves assets or information is kind of controlled by, you know, two out of two, two out of three, you know, kind of a multi-sig, right? Where just a few nodes or a few parties have to authorize a message that needs to go from A to B. And, you know, that cannot scale, right? Like, you know, that's that's not the premise of Web3. The whole premise is that you have open protocol with high resistance to censorship, with high availability that anybody can rely, anybody can build on, right? Um, and so this is where uniquely kind of Axler stands out is that it is the only protocol that's sort of uh, decentralized and permission and based on proof of stake security, which is the same model that's used to you know, power the chains that we actually connect. And so in some sense, you can think of Axela being a sort of a, you know, a blockchain that connects other blockchains, right? So its job is to connect and move uh, kind of information across these smart contracts, but the security of it is still based on the principles of decentralization, open valid data set, anybody can join, anybody can participate, anybody can transact uh, and send messages, you will not be censored by, you know, any individual. And it, it is a blockchain that, that powers the protocol underneath it. So that's the start. That you have to have a strong decentralization. You have to have the the design that can can support uh, strong security. From there, the security really comes down to the two other layers that have to be built. It's good engineering and kind of a practices and fallbacks. Right, the engineering side, um, these things are incredibly complex. You know, you're building a system that interacts with other systems, and so it's not lives in isolation. So you have to have very robust engineering practices. You have to have you know, multiple audits. We've done like over 27 audits on our network to date. Um, you know, we have like active bag bounties, right? Uh, review processes internally and externally. So things like that that have to be taken care of. Um, and then on top of it, you think about what what can I do to even make it safer for my applications, right? So for some applications, it makes sense to add what I call executed add-ons. So for instance, if you transfer in value, um, you know, on average, if you're transferring a million dollars per day. If you see a transaction that tries to transfer 100 million a day, that's probably something off there, right? Or maybe, you know, the network should take an extra care of reviewing those transactions or, um, you know, pause some of them. And so that's what we're thinking about is like, what are these additional application-specific add-ons that can be doing things like rate limiting or tra extra transaction invariants that have to be satisfied, you know, to, to enforce them? And how do you build those also in a, in a secure and a decentralized way? So this is kind of the third layer at the application um, that has to come about. Um, so I would say it's a complicated problem. The field has been, you know, pretty young, and I think have been rolled it out a lot of kind of ad hoc solutions. But I do think it can be done kind of robustly and securely. You just, you know, uh, should not take kind of shortcuts and kind of uh, think about it in a in a cohesive way. Santiago, Sergey is talking about decentralization here. Let me ask a very basic question, which doubtless some of our viewers may be wondering. It's something that my non-DeFi friends ask me all the time. They go, I get it. This can do some really cool stuff. I'm interested in that. I like the idea of smart contracts. But why does it matter if it's decentralized? Why is decentralization such an important value of this space? Uh, you know, I think it's one of the core values, and it, it makes sense that at this point in time, we don't reintroduce new centralized actors, um, not just for censorship resistance, but also for security and making sure that attack surfaces are low. And, and when investors or, or users decide to use these L1s, that they can do so and cross-chain communicate without having to worry about some of these risks. So so for me, as, as a user, I see it as a very attractive value proposition to to be able to create an application that can run across multiple chains and essentially borrow uh, many of the properties of each of those chains, depending on what it is uh, I'm interested in, 
uh, and not have to worry about um, you know hackers or attacks uh, or, or even middlemen extracting a, a excessive value. So it really is a, um, a solution set to, to avoid having to compromise on, on the core values of, of digital assets. Yeah, very well said. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In the final clip, uh, we're doing a deeper dive into the underlying tech. It's more technical, but stick with us. We'll explain it. At the very end of it, right, like every, every, every network relies sort of on the validators to do their job, right, and to kind of uh, power the underlying consensus if it's a decentralized system. So Axler uses proof-of-stake security where, you know, users uh, delegate the validators that run this cross-chain protocol, right, to send messages back and forth. And uh, we're innovating on that protocol um, a lot to kind of think about what are the things you can optimize to guarantee better security. So one example, actually a couple of weeks ago, we rolled out uh, an upgrade to the network that introduced properties like uh, quadratic voting, right? So one of the problems with a lot of proof of stake network is that you end up with a high concentration of validators, you know, at the top that have a lot of voting power, right? And so, you know, your attack surface kind of reduces to that. But in Axler, um, you know, to prevent things like this and give even stronger security for cross-chain messages, uh, quadratic voting used to apply, um, to effectively take a stake of a validator and take a screw root function of that. And that gives them the number of votes that they would participate in this cross-chain protocol. And so the more stake that you have, you know, your power in the consensus actually uh, grows as a function of a square root of those number of um, you know, stake uh, tokens that you have. So it allows you to have more decentralization, effectively a larger validator set that has to be kind of co-signed in every message. So that's one um, you know, property that we introduced, which I think is really, really powerful. The second thing is that um, kind of Axel has been built around um, you know, Tendermint SDK. There's this uh, work that's been going on in the industry uh, known as interchain security, right? And so the idea is that applications can kind of borrow and lend their security with mm -hmm. respect to validator sets of other networks, right? So for instance, if Axler, Axler is actually like a canonical provider of interoperability for Osmosis, right? And so if Osmosis is one of the good applications, then we can kind of co-share security, right? Maybe mm -hmm. um, kind of we borrow some security from Osmosis, maybe even Osmosis borrows some security from Axler to increase this sort of, uh, you know, stake for the validators that need to be um, need to be owned in order to kind of participate in consensus, slashing rules, incentives, and so on and so forth. And so I think we're going to see more and more of that happening as well over the coming years where um, uh, applications will kind of uh, be able to borrow and lend security from each other. Maybe even their tokens are used to kind of amplify security on the Axel network and everything functions more and more you know, as a unified ecosystem, as opposed to thinking about security as, is it this token or that token, but it's going to be, you know, a combination of them. Okay, Santiago, so we unpack some of the technical details here, things like proof of stake, delegated validators, quadratic voting. I know this stuff can sound a little bit technical to folks who don't have uh, strong tech backgrounds, who aren't computer scientists, but, you know, one of the challenges with this space, or perhaps one of the opportunities, is that the alpha 
uh, for in many ways investing is derived from understanding the technical underpinnings of how these chains work. Santiago, give us a, an explanation at a very high level of what some of these concepts are and why they matter in this space with regard to Axelar. Well, you know, I think well, there's a few ways that, uh, that investors can uh, benefit from this kind of structure. The first is, of course, participating in the Axelar network so that you are uh, staking against a, a reputable validator. Uh, and, and in that way, uh, you earn yield from helping tr these transactions move across chain securely. Uh, so that's, that's kind of number one. The second is from an application developer standpoint, uh, this abstracts a lot of the difficulty that, you know, if you're building a product uh, or building a team, you don't have to worry about uh, building the skill set for all these various L1s. You can work through an overlay network and through simple APIs, build applications that can then deliver services to your, your customers. So there's a lot of uh, value to, to leveraging this kind of network and, and other interoperable networks. Uh, so so for me, that that's how I would be framing it. Um, the risks are in understanding that each of the anchor points we talked about in the various L1s, those, those are the points where you could have failure. And, and what the Axelar team is doing very well is making sure that those smart contracts are well audited, um, that they're following best practices and 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 you know where the attacks could occur, they're putting the emphasis. Um, and so, you know, I, I I guess the final piece I would I would caution is uh, there there is these asymmetries between L1. So if one L1 is processing a transaction and it can do so very quickly, uh, the other L1 may have a completely different consensus algorithm. May may use proof of work, for example, and there's a delay there that may uh, have to be accounted for. And so what might end up happening is you get these multi-hop routes through various L1s. So the, the future is not just bridges, but you know very complicated pathfinding routes uh, to get your logic. And then finally, I'd, I'd add that um, it's very valuable to be able to take certain properties from different L1s. You know, Maybe I want security from this L1, I want privacy from another one. I want to perform some compute function from a third one and combine these properties into a, a decentralized app uh, and, and be able to share and do that securely. So that's also a very uh, interesting uh, kind of long end game. If some of these L1s that are connected start being used, you could see you know competitors to AWS arise, for example. So uh, for me, yeah. it's, it's, it's very interesting. Yeah, and that's what we talk about when we talk about money Legos. You've just explained the sort of sophisticated detail beneath the surface, but the idea of composability that these different protocols can snap together in different ways, interact with each other, pass data, pass value back and forth between each other, uh, and create something where that the whole is equal to more than the sum of the parts. Talking of which, as we roll things up here, some key takeaways that I think our viewers can take away from your conversation, Santiago, with Sergey Gorbanov. Uh, Sergey says he's decided to work on Axelar after seeing the number of different blockchains soar. The problem was, he says, that they couldn't talk to each other. So in order to facilitate the growth of the ecosystem, he started working on a protocol to deal with this issue. Santiago compared uh, Axelar to being a translator for blocks speaking different languages. Sergey uses the metaphor of air traffic control that allows developers to work from a standardized API. That's an application programming interface. It's the way that computer programs interact with each other. Uh, Sergey also talked about the need for proper decentralization. He says that the premise of Web3 is about transparency and accessibility. Uh, he also says that this is a critical starting point 
for cross-chain communication and that there can be no shortcuts to making it secure. Gorbanov believes that proof of stake and related technologies are a good way to go about achieving these goals. Okay, so let's move on to the final segment of our show, viewer questions. We have time today, I think, for one question. It comes from Dieter on YouTube. Uh, and the question is, if it would come to a split between two sides, regulated versus anonymous, we were talking about this earlier, uh, do you see privacy-oriented chains like Aleph Zero playing a bigger role in the next run, Santiago? Hmm. Yeah, you know, I think uh, if we start seeing regulatory pressure on the layer ones and on validators, on, you know, centralized exchanges who, who have large stakes, uh, I do think that privacy coins uh, in general will will outperform. And I've, I've held this thesis for a while now. Uh, I think the premium on privacy has been underestimated for a, a long, a long while. Uh, so, um, but whether or not that can sustain remains to be seen. If the regulators do figure out exactly where to put the pressure points, particularly on the on-ramps and off-ramps, uh, those privacy coins may find themselves under pressure. So there'll be this kind of a game of cat and mouse for, uh, for a long time. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I, I do see privacy as a fundamental uh, property. Uh, and there are legal challenges that are being presented in the courts in, in the case of Tornado Cash, for example, on the constitutionality of some of the OFAC sanctions on, on, on that privacy. So it, it, you will see a battle on two fronts there. Yeah, absolutely. Extremely well said. And there certainly are uh, significant open questions about the regulatory, legal and compliance aspect about those privacy chains. I should ask, Santiago, Aleph Zero, is that a chain you're familiar with? No, I'm not. But I'm going to look into it now that uh, our uh, viewer uh, uh, brought it up. I'm not familiar with it either. The only thing I know about Aleph is that it's like a Hebrew and Aramaic letter that mathematicians use to denote different levels of infinity. Uh, and if you want to blow your mind, uh, Google Cantor set theory, uh, and you will go down a deep rabbit hole on the math. Uh, Santiago, delightful to have you with us. We really enjoy these conversations. You possess this rare ability to uh, talk to the technical founders of these companies and then break them down in plain English here with us. Fantastic. Really enjoyed this conversation with you today. Thanks so much for having me, Ash. Appreciate it. That's it for today's show. Thank you for watching, everybody. As always, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Smash the like button. Hit the notification bell so that you know when we go live. Remember, this is your show. We want to hear from you about what's working and what's not. So drop us a comment below and let us know your feedback. What guests do you want to see? What themes should we cover here? We appreciate you sharing your time with us today, and we always appreciate your suggestions and recommendations. Tomorrow, we've got Wrecked Capital with the latest technical analysis. Before we go, we want to flag some big changes here at Real Vision. We're refreshing the Real Vision Essential tier, our entry-level macro subscription. We're launching multiple new shows, including Make or Break, Steno Signals, Three Ideas, and The Collectors. All of this at the reduced price of $99 per year. Go to realvision.com forward slash essential. That's realvision.com forward slash get essential, I should say, get essential to sign up. We'll leave you with a new snippet of the offering right now. See you tomorrow live on Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. The Sri Lankan Prime Minister's house set alight. First is authoritarianism. The second is corruption. The FOMC is strongly resolved to bring inflation down to 2%. The home builders are abandoning homes. Massive protests going on here. We're going to see a material impact here on growth and indeed on earnings, which might pull it. Change is happening and you can fear it. But you're not going to stop it.
There are really only two countries in Europe that have managed to maintain a replacement level birth rate, France and Sweden. This is the biggest bubble in the history of the world, and you have no clue. It's all herd mentality. It's the same as the property market. What happens over the next few months could define what happens over the next few years. So we want to make sure that you understand why. You've probably realized that we really have been listening to you.